I have a couple of thoughts as I watch that video. Number one, I, I just see the pictures of, of kids when they're like five and six and then now graduating, and it just fills me with absolute dread as I have a six-year-old at home that before I know it, we're going to be sending him off. And then also, I am absolutely certain Kayla Roberto can deadlift more than I can. And um, so, but congratulations to all of the, the graduates. Uh, as we continue our worship, we're going to turn into uh, our, in our Bibles into Matthew chapter 8. If you'd like to use one of the, the church Bibles in front of you, you'll find our reading on page 813, Matthew chapter 8. Uh, we're going to be looking at a pretty large portion of Scripture in, in Matthew, uh, from Matthew eight eighteen all the way through to chapter 9, verse 8. You'll understand why uh, as we make our way through. Uh, Matthew eight eighteen through 9, 8. I'll give you a moment to turn there, and then we'll read and, and begin. As we turn there, this is what we read in Scripture. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tomb, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow and pray together. Father, we come before you again this morning as we do week in and week out, asking for you to do that which only you can do, and that is to make the book live to us. That you would show us our sin, that you would show us our Savior. 
and that you would make the book live to us. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I heard um, about two weeks ago a preacher preach a sermon in which he, he dedicated the entire message to Billy Graham. And I want to just sort of take a, a page out of that preacher's playbook and say that I, I would like to preach a message this morning in honor of this man, uh, this man that goes by the name, or went by the name rather, of C.T. Studd. C.T. Studd lived uh, in the 19th century and into the turn into the, the 20th century. He grew up in the UK to a very wealthy family. His father had been a planter in India, came home with a lot of wealth. They were horse racers, enjoyed just a lot of affluence in his upbringing. He went on to become an athlete in, in England. He was a, a, a cricketer. And as a matter of fact, at one point, he was known as the greatest cricketer in all of England. But C.T. Studd gave up all of that. Threw away wealth, affluence, prestige, notoriety as an athlete, in order to follow Jesus in the call to missionary service in China. C.T. Studd is one of the greatest sources for Christian quotes. If you just Google C.T. Studd quotes, I mean, he's the one who said, um, one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. He's the one who said, many want to live within earshot of a church bell. I would rather live at a rescue, uh, rescue shelter one yard away from hell. Uh, but my favorite C.T. Studd quote is, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. That, in essence, is C.T. Studd's legacy. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then there is no sacrifice too great that I could ever make for him. Sort of the theme of the text that we've read together in Matthew chapter 8, the key word in Matthew 8 and 9 is authority. Jesus preached with authority. We know that at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Many were marveling at the authority of Jesus as he preached in the Sermon on the Mount. But as he comes down from the mountain in chapters 8 and 9, Jesus displays his unmatched authority on earth and then will soon send his disciples out with his authority to minister in chapter 10. And all throughout the passage that we've read, what we discover is Jesus using or mediating his authority by his word. By his word. The word of Jesus is of vital importance for his disciples. Jesus has all authority we read in chapter 28 of, of this very same gospel. And that authority is mediated by means of his word. What does Jesus command his disciples to do? To make disciples who will do what? Obey all that I have commanded. You cannot play games with the word of Jesus. And in the passage in front of us, what we have is Jesus mediating his authority through his word over his disciples, over nature over demons, and over sin itself. That's the big idea of, uh, that Matthew wants us to understand this morning, is that Jesus has absolute authority over these things. His disciples, nature, demons, and even sin itself. I just want to make our way through the passage and, and look at each one of these little bits or, or stories. Each one could be handled on its own with profit, but as we see them together, what we see is a Lord who exercises authority through His Word. 
And the first area in which Jesus' authority is pictured here is His authority over disciples. Over His disciples. I want you to look again at verses 18 to 22 with me. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around Him, He gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to Him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Who does this man think he is? That's not a blasphemous question. That's a very important question. Who does this man think he is? Did you notice how authoritatively Jesus addresses these two would-be disciples? In the words of Charles Spurgeon, one of them comes at Jesus too fast, the other comes at Jesus too slow. But what Jesus does here as these two men approach Him is He declares with authority that I define and dictate what it means to follow Me. Did you understand that? I define and dictate what it means to follow me. It's not up for interpretation. There are no committees. Jesus is king. Now, I want you to notice the areas in which the, the, the places that Jesus sort of puts his finger on, these sore spots in first century society and in ours as it relates to following him. The first man that approaches Jesus approaches Jesus far too quickly. He makes, if you will, a decision for Jesus that is completely uninformed and completely inadequate. He's a scribe, we're told. Scribes in the first century were the experts in the law. They were the academics, the intellectuals in the law of Jesus' day. And this man must have caught a little bit of the authority of Jesus' teaching, the way that Jesus mediates his authority through his word, because he comes to Jesus and addresses him as teacher. Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now what could possibly be wrong with that? What could possibly be wrong with coming to Jesus and saying, I am prepared to follow you wherever you go? It's got everything to do with wherever you go. See, this man has not come to grips with the fact that discipleship always and only ever trumps comfort. I want you to understand that. Discipleship, following Jesus, always and only ever trumps comfort. Personal autonomy, aspirations, dreams. Jesus, in a word, is over absolutely everything. Jesus says, you haven't come to grips yet with the fact that to follow me is to sacrifice your own comfort. Verse 20, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It just occurs to me that our friends that are buying into and preaching the prosperity gospel have not got the memo that Jesus, in his earthly ministry, was homeless. Jesus tells this man who approaches him too quickly, are you really prepared to follow me wherever I go? Because to follow me is to attach yourself to a homeless Lord and Savior. Are you going to follow me? Do you understand that to follow me is to sacrifice personal comfort? Jesus demands everything. I want you to understand that this morning that Jesus gives everything 
in His death and resurrection. He gives of Himself for His people to save us from our sins, but He demands everything. This man comes to Jesus far too quickly and has not understood that discipleship means sacrificing comfort. Here's the glorious Son of Man of Daniel's vision. The one to whom a kingdom is given. The one to whom all authority is given. Every tribe, tongue, nation, and language should worship Him. And He says, I don't even have anywhere to lay my head. You're really prepared to follow Me. Have you made an intelligent decision to follow Me? Not an emotional reaction. Not a spur-of-the-moment commitment. Have you really thought it out? That to follow Jesus requires everything of you. Sacrificing your comfort. Not only that, but a second man comes to Jesus, and if the first man came too quickly, this man comes far too slowly. Verse 21. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Again, I ask, what could possibly be wrong with that? If we're not careful, we will read our 21st century American culture into a 1st century, uh, for all practical purposes, Jewish text. And we'll think, well, uh, yeah, I mean, of course you, you would allow a man to get on with his father's funeral before. In Jewish culture, a, a relative was buried within hours. So what we think is more likely about this man is that he hasn't, his father hasn't yet died. He's, he's caring for his father in the latter years of his life, and he's saying, listen, Jesus, when, when my father finally passes, once I've fulfilled my commitment to my father, then I will follow you. And the problem resides in the word first. Lord, let me first fulfill my commitment to my Father and then I will follow you. When you subtract all of the emotional baggage that surrounds the family dynamic here in this text, what this man is saying simply on the, on the face of it is, Lord, I will follow you tomorrow. I will follow you tomorrow. Now what Lord worth his salt stands anyone addressing him that way? I'll follow you tomorrow. I'll never forget one of the first things I did when I moved here is I began to ask people, some of you even, help me understand the culture of Newcastle. And I had one person say, and I'll never forget because it sent chills down my spine, he said, you know, that bit in the Gospels where Jesus talks about father and mother and loving him more than father and mother, that would never fly in Newcastle. Because we idolize our families. You know it as well as I know it. But the question that I ask, the question that Jesus asked, the question that the Scriptures ask is, is Jesus Lord over Newcastle? You better believe He is. We might not know who the next mayor is, but we know who the Lord is. It's Christ. Do you know what Jesus says later on in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 10? He says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. What's with Matthew and the mother's-in-law? And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me get this, is not worthy of me. That's Jesus. There's only one Jesus. 
Anyone who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. You're simply not even prepared to begin following Jesus if there's a first before you're following. Do you see? Jesus gives everything and yet requires everything. He is Lord. He is the King. Now maybe you're here this morning and you think, well, my goodness, that's an overstepping of authority. You'd never say it out loud, but you, you say it in your heart. That's an overstepping of authority. It's a bit like the parent who tries to discipline a child that doesn't belong to them. The coach that tries to enact a curfew on his players outside of the football field. I mean, the boss that has demands on your social media usage. That's an overstepping of your authority. How dare you try and tell me how to live in that area of my life? But friends, Jesus has no jurisdiction, no limits to His jurisdiction. He is Lord over all of life. And so when He demands everything of His people, He demands everything of His people by His Word and with authority. Who does He think He is? I mean, who can possibly say this? Only the one who not only has authority over his disciples, but secondly has authority over nature. Look at verse 23. Now what Matthew is doing is he's beginning to build this case. Look at how powerful the word of the Lord Jesus Christ is. That's his intention. Whatever we might say about this bit with the storm, about the storms of our lives and the trials that we face, is secondary to the primary emphasis. Who is this Christ? When he got into the boat, we read, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. These are grown men who have made their living as fishermen. Reduced to absolute panic in the midst of this great storm. They're powerless. You know, we think all the time about our ability to, in some ways, control the weather through meteorology. We can predict what's going to happen and sort of dictate our activities based on weather. We haven't really got that sorted out yet. Pretty bad at that. But we certainly cannot control the weather. Maybe you were like me last night as the storm was raging on in the middle of the night. You were awakened either by the thunder that was booming in your house or the flash of lightning in your bedroom as I was. And you, you were startled. I can tell you what I didn't do and what I guarantee you didn't do is you didn't look out the window and say, now you stop it. Just stop it. I'm trying to sleep. I'm going to get up early in the morning. Go to ch Just quit. You could never do that. But look at what Jesus does. Verse 26, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith, you untrusting, hard-hearted disciples? It seems like such a simple and silly question. Really, why are we afraid? We're dying. Who does this man think he is? Why are you afraid? He thinks he's the one who will soon get up and rebuke the winds and the sea. You know what that word means? That word means he corrected. He spoke to the wind and the sea and immediately there was a great calm. There's no natural explanation for this. There's no meteorological, meteorological explanation for this. He spoke, and the great storm instantly, verse 26, becomes a great 
calm. And the whole point of what Matthew records here is in verse 27. The men marveled. They were astounded. They'd never seen anything like this. And look at what they ask. Not who is this. What sort of man is this? What kind of person is this? We've never encountered anyone like this in our lives. What kind of man is this? And the answer, of course, resides in the fact that he's not a mere man. Psalm 107. So the Lord in His power being able to rebuke the wind and the storms, and it listens. It's not a mere man. This is God Almighty in the flesh, the one who made heaven and earth, the one who separated the waters from the dry land, who can now speak to the storm and tell it to be calm, and it obeys. What kind of man is this? Even the waves and the sea obey him. So we're beginning to develop this case. Listen, if the wind and the seas obey the Lord Jesus Christ, what excuse have you got? He's got authority over nature. Thirdly, he has authority over the demons, verse 28. Now, I love this passage. I'm thinking about writing a, a, a horror movie script based on this passage called Coming Out of the Tombs. I mean, this is terrifying material. And we look at verse 26. When he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one, no one could pass that way. Here you have the bad part of the bad part of town. We've got a herd of pigs in the area. That means this is Gentile land. This is not Jewish land. It's already the bad part of town. But what's more than that, we're in the graveyard. We're in the cemetery. We're among the tombs. And we've got demon-possessed people. This is horrifying. They're so violent, so fierce, so demented that no one could pass that way. You can imagine the scene. And yet, as Jesus approaches, these two men who for who knows how long have terrorized this entire community are themselves terrorized merely by the presence of this king. Look at what they, they do. They begin immediately to cry out, what have you to do with us? Have you come here to torment us before the time? What's that? I sometimes feel as though, as a, as a church, we, we, we speak about the devil way too much. Like we, we just find the devil under every pew in the building. Understand that even the demons understand that they are defeated enemies. I mean, as Jesus comes onto the scene, they go, oh my goodness, is it sentencing time already? Boy, that really came fast. Are you here to torment us before the time? The time's coming, they know that. But they shriek, they cry out in, in torment and in, in terror at the presence of Jesus. They begin to beg Him, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And the whole point, again, of this passage comes in two simple letters. Go! That's what Jesus has to say. Go! And then the real horror starts. The pigs begin to run one by one off of the steep bank and into the sea, drowning in the waters. Go. Jesus has absolute authority over the demons, and how does he exercise that? By his word. He speaks. Herdsmen go back to their town. Can you even imagine the report that they gave? It would have gone something like this. Herdsman comes back to a person in town and says, you'll never, you'll never guess what I saw over in the gatherings today. I mean, I was there. 
with Tony. We were watching the pigs. They're feeding. All of a sudden, I see this guy rolling about 12 deep walk up by the tombs. So I look at my guy and I say, oh, this is going to be good. Well, you've seen people march on up there time and time again, and each and every time they come walking back, tail between their legs, terrified, because we know the boys are in the tombs. But so this time was a little bit different. Because that guy, he, he, he led the charge with his disciples, this group that was with them, and they went right up into the tombs, and the guys came out just like every other time. They came right out to meet them. But you know what? As we were listening, it sounded like, I couldn't really make out what they were saying, but it sounded like they were scared. So I said, well, of course they were scared. Have you seen those guys? He goes, no, 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 no. The guys, they were scared. And then it seemed like there was this, this scuffle going on, this like verbal scuffle. And the next thing I knew, the guy in the front of the group, he said something really loudly. I'll never forget it. It was just one word. I heard him. Plain as day, he said, go. And the second he said go, I looked down at the pigs. They all start squealing. They start running one by one right off the cliff. Scared me half to death. I took off and ran, and here I am now. All it takes is one little word, go. And the demons are cast out of these men and into the pigs. Nature, the wind and the waves obey Jesus. Demons obey Jesus. So then, what is your excuse? Fourthly, Jesus' authority over sin. He's calmed the wind and the waves. He's cast out demons. And now, through a mere word, Jesus deals with sin. Chapter 9, verse 1, Getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my, sin, your, my son, your sins are forgiven. Who says that? Who says that? I mean, you, you just think about this from every possible angle that you can think of it. Think of it merely from the angle of this man suffering from being a paralytic. We're told in other gospel accounts that he is, he is lowered through the roof of the building in order for Jesus to interact with him. Here is a man who suffers physical ailment, and the first thing that he hears out of Jesus is not take heart, my son. Your paralysis is healed. He says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And we talk about priorities, loved ones. It is not, in the first place, physical healing, physical blessing, physical prosperity, or success. It is spiritual well-being. Jesus says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. But then think again about the audacity of someone who declares sins forgiven. Could you imagine going into your place of employment this week and telling the people around you, take heart, your, your sins are forgiven, my son. Take heart, my daughter, I've, I've forgiven everything. We look at you like you've got two heads. Who says that? And if it's in, in our day, crazy, in Jesus' time, it would have been Flat out blasphemy. Look at what the scribes begin to think to themselves. This man is blaspheming. Only God can forgive sins. Who does this man think he is? Well, he must think he's God. 
And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, begins to speak with them. Why do you think evil in your hearts? Which must have just startled the dickens out of them. Why do you think evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? What do you think? What's easier? I bet that one confused the heck out of you as you did your Bible reading, right? Which is easier? It's easier to say your sins are forgiven. It's not easier to forgive sins, but it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because I can't prove it. But Jesus says, so that you might know that I have the authority to forgive sins, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. I know a a woman who just recently ran a 50K race. Can you imagine that? 50K, like 30-something miles. A couple weeks later, she ran a 5K. Someone said, are you prepared for the 5K? Well, of course I'm prepared for the 5K. If I can do the 50, I can do the 5. If I can heal the sick, then I can forgive their sins. Jesus says, take up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. In verse 8, when the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. They were afraid. I love ones, let's get just really practical here for a moment as it relates to who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. There is a beautiful passage in one of uh, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia books in which one of the young children is looking at Aslan, the, the Christ figure in the stories before she's met him. And she says, oh, that's Aslan. He's a lion. I, I, I expected him to be a man. Never met a lion. She turns to someone next to her and she says, well, is he quite safe? Is he quite safe? Lions are frightening, aren't they? I can't approach a lion. Is he quite safe? And the response that she gets in return is, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe. But he's good, I tell you. He's the king. Now what C.S. Lewis is projecting upon Aslan, he's meant to be teaching us about Jesus. Is he quite safe? Who in the world said anything about Jesus being safe? Where did we get that idea that Jesus is safe? That's a bit too much Jesus meek and mild in Sunday school if you think Jesus is safe. Of course he's not safe. But he's good, I tell you. He's the king. And the proper response to hearing and witnessing how this king, this king mediates his authority by his word is to be afraid. You ever thought about that? And if Jesus is the word of God who was functioning at creation to make all that we see, who spoke you into existence, if Jesus is the one who makes authoritative demands for what it means to follow Him, if Jesus can calm the wind and the waves with His Word, if He can cast out demons with His Word, if He can forgive sin with His Word, if He will one day come to judge the living and the dead with the sword that comes from His mouth, that is, His Word. I once if we have not gotten to a place of fear before Jesus, yes, fear, you haven't even made a beginning, you haven't even made a start of understanding who He is. 
I think some of us have a picture of Jesus sort of just waiting in the corner, begging for somebody, anybody, please, come to me. I'm really lonely. But is that a Christ worth following? Really? Is that a Lord worth your entire life? No, absolutely not. The biblical Jesus is the Jesus who will soon say in Matthew's Gospel, come to me, come to me all you who, are, uh, who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Yes, that is grace. That is the Gospel. That Jesus saves His people from their sins and calls us to Himself in grace. But don't for a moment... Let's not think for a moment that that means that Jesus is abdicating the throne as Lord. Jesus does not ask, listen, He does not ask you this morning, would you like to follow Me? Where were the questions in this text? The only question I saw was, um, why are you afraid? Are you a little faith? What I saw was a command. Follow me. Now that's all the difference in the world, isn't it? Follow me. I am the Lord. I am the King. I am the Savior who saves His people from their sins. So follow me. This is who I am. This is my authority. Follow me. Now, for the one who says that, that doesn't sound like, like grace. Think about this king who is owed everything and owes no one anything. And he has come to earth to usher in the kingdom of heaven not with a message of destruction, but a message of follow me. There is all the grace in the world in that command. Follow me. So will you follow Him? Will you follow Him with an open Bible, listening to what He says and obeying what He says? Because again, I say to you, friends, in the words of C.T. Studd, if Jesus Christ be God, Oh, the kind of God who can calm the wind and the seas? Yes. The kind of God who can cast out demons? Yes. The kind of God who can pronounce sins forgiven? Yes. If Jesus Christ is God, and He died for you, then what in the world could possibly be a sacrifice too great for Him to ask of you? It's impossible to even conceive of. And when there is no following Jesus, there is no discipleship under the tutelage of Christ that leaves areas for Jesus not to exercise His authority. He gives everything, but He demands everything. Jesus over comfort. Jesus over commitments, even family commitments. Is He Lord? Does He have authority? 
Yes. And He mediates to it, uh, that to us through His Word. So in submission to His Word, we follow Him. We take up our cross and we walk along the path of grace. He is the Savior who forgives our sins and brings us into His kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we just confess how difficult, how difficult, how demanding is the call to discipleship. Lord, we are saved by grace alone, but yet we do not have the option to have Jesus as our Savior, but not as our Lord. You are the King who rules with all authority. All authority over your disciples, over nature, over demons, and over sin itself. Pronounce sin forgiven because you die for sin. And so we confess with stud that if you are God and you are, and you died for us and you did, then there is no sacrifice too great that you could ask of us. So Lord, we pray that where we keep areas back from you, where we place other things before you, where we have treated you lightly, acting as though we were the ones who were in control of our Christian journey, that You would grant us repentance this morning. That we might humbly and joyfully submit to Your Lordship. Help us to exalt above all things Your name and Your Word, even as You have in Jesus' name. Amen.